How can speech be protected on campus? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Sigal Bemporath. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Sigal Ben-Porath. Sigal is a professor of education, political science, and philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research focuses on citizenship, education, normative aspects of educational and social policy, and the social and educational effects of war. Her areas of expertise include philosophy of education and political philosophy. She's the author of many books, including Free Speech on Campus, and that's the one that will inform a lot of our discussion here today. Sigal, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. So Sigal, in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the discussion takes us. So I'll throw it right over to you. Let's kick it off. How can speech be protected on campus? Well, the premise of your question, Alex, might be that uh, speech currently is not properly protected on campus, which actually is a premise that I don't fully endorse. So uh, we can start maybe with um, uh, considering some of this uh, assumption that is pretty common today that uh, campuses today are hostile to speech or do not properly protect the speech of both campus members, such as students and faculty, and of others from, you know, outside the community who are looking to express their views. And I actually think that speech can be protected and is protected on campus through just our common operation as a community of learners. So the way that campuses operate uh, today and as they have operated uh, in the modern era um, more generally is that they are in fact um, contexts in which people are coming together to explore and consider questions of mutual interest and in which we are looking together both to share our knowledge and also to expand the boundaries of knowledge. And the way that we do it quite commonly is by speaking, by talking to each other, by pushing each other's um, perspectives and ideas, um, arguing, um, objecting to each other's views. So at the most basic or fundamental level, um, speech can be protected on campus by letting universities and colleges do their work the way that they were intended to do and the way that they most commonly do it every day. Now, obviously, there are a lot of cases these days that are of concern in this regard, but I just want to start us off by setting out the premise that colleges and universities or the higher education uh, community overall today is in fact a context in which speech most broadly, fundamentally, and commonly is already protected. 
and I'm glad you sort of made sure that we were defining and being clear about the premise. I, your book does open by noting that the free speech, quote, crisis uh, situations occur a lot less than is frequently portrayed in the media. So I find that very interesting that, that you went into that. So we defined our premise a bit there. Let's talk about what a university is, because in your book, you do note that free speech ultimately isn't the primary or core principle of a university. It's, it's academic freedom. You do make that distinction in your book. And I found that very interesting. So I thought maybe you can go a little bit into that. Right. So universities are actually contexts in which speech is not open in the same way that it is in a democracy more broadly, right? So obviously, to the extent that we operate within democratic, uh, you know, countries as we do in Canada and in the US and in other countries, um, of course, we have to operate as um, uh, within the boundaries of the legal and political expectations of a democracy. But in a democracy, Speech is protected for the purpose of um, expressing the equal dignity of all citizens or all members of the community, right? So the reason that your speech and my speech and anybody else's speech is protected in a democratic context more broadly is that I have the same dignity and the same standing and the same presumption of good faith as you or as anybody else, right? So I would like to hear what you say, not necessarily because I would value it or agree with it or even uh, think very highly of it, of course, uh, as, a, um, as a hypothetical here, uh, but because by allowing you to speak freely, um, we as a society recognize the equal standing of all our members, right? You might be right to the same extent that I might be right or anybody else might be right. And so our speech has to be protected in a democracy to express that. A university is a different kind of animal, right? At a university, what we try to do is we actually try to prioritize knowledge that serves the particular purposes that we are trying to pursue uh, at a given moment, right? So if I come into my uh, biology 101 class and I read my students the recent poetry that I'm interested in, of course, this is protected speech. I'm not saying anything that's illegal or illegitimate, but it's inappropriate for the context because in a biology classroom, we are prioritizing particular types of knowledge. And even within whatever is relevant to the biology classroom, we are still prioritizing. This is more relevant. Uh, this has already been debunked. You know, this is not an, an important consideration for today, whatever it might be. So we curate and we prioritize as a matter of course. And so what's important for a university um, to protect of course, it's free speech in the general right sense, in the sense that we operate within a democracy. But what's important really to protect is academic freedom in the professional and institutional sense, right? So we want to make sure that if um, you are coming to teach me, you know, biology, for instance, that um, your uh, decisions, preferences, priorities as a teacher will not be hampered by outside, irrelevant, ideological, 
or other considerations, considerations about value, any other considerations that are independent or irrelevant to your consideration as the teacher in the classroom and to some extent also students' uh, needs and preferences and uh, relevant uh, priorities within the classroom, right? So, So a university is not meant to express the equal dignity of its members by allowing everybody to say whatever it is that, that that comes to their mind or whatever they are interested in or to just express their views more broadly. Definitely within the classroom, which is the primary, most important space within the university, there are priorities, there are boundaries, there are professional norms and expectations. There are hierarchies of knowledge right, which we impose for the purpose of knowledge, of uh, learning and advancing our knowledge. And so um, in the context of a university, the primary um, value that we have to promote is the one of academic freedom. Beyond that, you know, in the um, on the green or the quad or wherever is the public space within the university where people exchange views and act as citizens or as uh, more general members of the community, there, of course, free speech has to be protected in a similar way to the way that it needs to be protected in a democracy, right? So we have to differentiate among different spaces within the university, and we have to make sure that we don't mix them up, right? The fact that if you are a member of one ideological civic group on campus and I'm a member of a different one, and we both should be permitted to express our opinions freely, and that's obviously is true, or maybe not obviously, but it certainly is true, that should not impede the ability of our you know, teacher in the bio class to tell us, no, you're wrong, or you may not say that here, or this is not a topic of conversation in my class, or this goes beyond my norms, etc. So we have to make sure that we are talking about the relevant context within the university. And the way that we know what is relevant for different purposes or for different criteria is really by asking ourselves, what purpose does it serve? Why are we in the classroom? Are we in the classroom to assert our equal dignity? Not really. There is a different purpose for our being in a classroom, and it is served by different norms and practices around speech, right? Why are we members of the um, campus conservative uh, party or the campus progressive party or whichever, you know, the campus Catholics or whichever group that it might be, right? Why do we participate in that? It's for a different purpose. And so the norms and practices around speech and the protections for speech are different in these different contexts. I'm, I'm really glad we got into that. And I'm also glad you brought up sort of the different aspects of what a university is, because I, I left a note for myself here to make sure we define sort of and explored what exactly university is. And when it comes to the classroom context, what I'm taking away from what you're saying is that it's fair to say that, once again, the primary value there is academic freedom and academic exchange. So 
so speech must be um, looked at, regulated, organized it, from that perspective. It can't primarily be for, as you said, people just to express whatever they want. That's not the primary goal of the classroom. Right. And you did touch on, but I'd like to go a little deeper into, as you said, there's the, a little more, let's call them uh, public spaces of a university, whether right. it's the, the campus or an area where people are going to protest or, like you said, meet and freely associate for cl- uh, between clubs and things like that. Is, is this an area that still needs to be at the s- service of the concept of academic freedom or can we take a little bit more liberty there when it comes to free speech. Right. How do you view that sort of difference between the classroom and the campus? Right. So, of course, uh, this these spaces are not inherently academic in the sense that they are not bound by particular disciplinary or professional knowledge, right? And they are not there to protect and to promote um, any particular type of information, knowledge, or even truth, right? The student organizations and the civic life on campus, uh, the more public spaces where both different groups of students interact and uh, sometimes uh, members of the public that are not students or faculty or don't belong within the university also come in and speak or express their views or interact in different ways. These spaces are, as you said, regulated or organized by other principles because they are not trying to promote the academic mission. So what is it that they are trying to do there? They are trying to provide a space um, that is more um, related or more closely tied to the general space in a democracy that I mentioned earlier in which people practice their civic preferences, people express their views, people um, act as citizens. And I think for a university, and particularly um, a residential university, right, it's particularly important in contexts where people actually also live, right, because where you have commuter campuses is really less material in this regard. But when you have uh, spaces uh, such as residential universities and colleges where people really spend a few years of their life, usually when they are younger, although not exclusively, and this is really where they practice and take on their civic roles. And universities are oftentimes keen on um, emphasizing the importance of civic life in their mission, uh, the centrality of activism or participation or engagement to the kind of life that they would like their students to lead. And oftentimes even relate the academic mission itself, not only just to the professional futures that their students hopefully will have based on what they learned uh, as students, but also to their ability to contribute to society in different ways, right? Not only just the professional or economic way, but also the civic, social, or participatory way. So for students um, to be able to exercise these general democratic rights on campus is really a significant part, a significant aspect of their life on campus to the extent that they want to take it on. Of course, class is mandatory, 
but civic participation is more optional. A lot of students are interested in you know, the diverse ways, not only just through political party participation, but really diverse ways to explore and express their civic commitments. Um, and so within this space, we really do need to protect a broader um, array of opinions and forms of expression. And we have to make sure that we allow students to hear and to respond um, to a variety of opinions, right? So this is where we sometimes run into trouble because we have people who come and express um, marginal or extremist or sometimes prejudiced or other views, um, a, a, sometimes a, uh, specific political perspectives that are not necessarily um, accepted by many or all on campus. And then we run into some of these troubles that we've seen in recent years, where whether it's a campus member, such as a student, a student group, or a faculty member, or it's an outside speaker, invited or uninvited, who are uh, coming in and expressing opinions that are creating some turmoil and disagreement and pressures. This is happening not in the academic space for the most part. Sometimes it happens in the classroom. But most of the issues that we've seen in recent years are really issues with expressions of opinions that are unaccepted or sometimes uh, seen as hurtful or as uh, uh, even in contradiction to basic values that other community members hold. And this is where we see some of these clashes. It's in the civic democratic space on campus. It's not in the academic space for the most part. We talked about the classroom. We talked about, let's call it the campus, just give it a general title. Uh, and how about the, the, and you touched on it, the residential areas of a university. Some have made the argument through, uh, from what I've researched that, you know, it's no holds bar everywhere on campus, whether it's the classroom or the or, or the, the campus itself or, or the residential area, um, you know, unlimited free speech should be the, the main goal. That's what some people have said. How do you feel about the residential areas of the university? You've talked about how the classroom and the, the campus should be right. treated separately. Uh, and differently. How about the residential areas where, where students and sometimes faculty, I guess, might live? Right. I mean, so my view on this is that students, especially students, especially when they are younger and they live on campus, they can reasonably expect to have some respite within their residential um, dorms or within the context where they live. I um I had a few debates about this in the last uh, year plus, you know, since the book came out. Uh, and uh, one of the exchanges that was more, most like just um, maybe uncomfortable or stark in my view was a, a, in an exchange that I had at the University of Arizona with Noam Chomsky, who is a, um, a visiting professor there now. Oh, I think uh, I think I saw that actually. It was recorded. I think I did see that video. Yeah, yeah. it's on YouTube, right? And he um, expressed that if people put so the example that he gave, which is relevant to both him and me, um, 
what do we do if somebody puts a poster or a banner in the dorm that says all Jews must die? Uh, both him and myself are Jewish. And so this was the example in the exchange that we were considering. And I was thinking about it also in light of my children who are now attending residential colleges. And I'm wondering how would I feel as a parent if my children um, see something like this when they open their uh, their uh, room's door in the morning. Um, and actually, we have seen uh, anti-Semitic content. Obviously, this is just an example. We've seen a lot of other biased uh, and hate-based content on college campuses in the last few years. So, and, and this is on the rise in the United States. So it's definitely a pressing issue to consider. Do we accept the um, expression of hate and bias and sometimes a verging on incitement, but just on the legal side, right? So, in, you know, incitement is not permitted or death threats are not permitted. But if somebody just says, as in Chomsky's example, all Jews must die, apologies to people who find this hurtful. Um, but uh, it's not personal, right? I happen to be Jewish, so I find it to be offensive or even scary. Um, in my view, this should not be permitted, right? And the reason it should it should not be permitted is because I actually think that the proverbial safe spaces, which people worry about so much in the context of college campuses, um, they should be seen as legitimate when we think about young people who live on campus for whatever number of years that they end up being there. You cannot be expected as a young person or actually as any person, but definitely when you're younger and have just left home, to be constantly barraged by these challenges, right? By these um, demands that you reconsider the um, positions that you hold, or even that you accept as a given that some people don't see you as an equal member of society, or even don't consider you uh, as, again, in Chomsky's example, as having a right to live at all, right? So uh, while some considerations about these matters are not beyond the pale. For instance, I have some colleagues who teach Mein Kampf, uh, Hitler's um, writing, in their uh, history classes. It's pretty painful, but of course I think this is a legitimate exploration of extreme hatred and bias, again, in this case, anti-Semitism, but we have similar example regarding a racism or anti-expression uh, uh, related to other religions, etc. cetera. Uh, of course, it's permissible to learn about uh, the history of slavery in the United States, the history of First Nations in Canada or First People in Canada and uh, United States and other places, the history of anti-Semitism, whatever it might be, right? So learning about hatred, both in history and today, is reasonable for people who are exploring this domain. Uh, being faced with it day in and day out, I think... Um, should not be a requirement for attending college, right? So 
uh, of course, uh, once you say that this should not be permitted as a form of expression, for instance, in, in inside the residence or the dorms, then you are faced with the question, okay, so where do you draw the line, right? Right. What is permissible? What is impermissible? What if somebody just said something and they thought it was artistic or funny and I find it hurtful? So uh, I don't think we need to have hard and fast rules about where you draw the line. But I do think we need to recognize the principle, which is that people should not be um, expected to be challenged or questioned in this way throughout the day, every day for the years for, uh, in which they are on campus. Now, if one person finds this thing hurtful and the other person thinks it's funny, great. We can have a conversation. We can negotiate that. We can try to understand each other. Why do you find it hurtful? Why do you find it funny, right? Why do some people think it's legitimate to say this or that or the other thing? We can have a discussion about it, but the discussion cannot start either from the premise that everything goes and everything is permitted or from the premise that any person has veto power over everything, right? We have to reach a community standard of agreement about what's permissible, what, what is reasonable. And honestly, I've been doing it for a few years at Penn and I've supported colleges doing it um, uh, both in Canada and the US in the past few years, developing their own internal processes for figuring out how to develop policy around questions like this is really possible. If you come with some, you know, good faith, it's really possible to agree. And I think that's actually a great place to take a quick break. So we're going to do that right now. We'll be right back on The Curious Task with Sigel. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Elizabeth Aragona, and Danny LaRoy. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. All right, everybody, welcome back here on The Curious Task. We're talking with Sigal Ben-Porath. Um, before the break, Sigal, we were talking about well, or I should say, you left off discussing how um, people on a campus or at a university, people going to college, it, it, it's in your view not necessary that every single day, every single minute, they're facing constant challenges to either their points of view or in some cases, if there's something hateful being said, that their very existence. You brought up some some examples of that before the break. But I wanted to clarify, like... Is, once again, back to our sort of conversation about the different spheres of a university, I think you made it pretty clear that in someone's residential area, let's say, where they're actually going to go and hang out with other students or friends or, or you know, uh, basically get some distance away from the campus, let's call it. So essentially where they live, I think it's reasonable to say there that you definitely think that uh, speech needs to be a little more regulated there. When we get back to the campus area, though, I know you said that it's hard to say, OK, here's the line. 
and then it's it's always it's always there so we have to approach it with some sort of criteria and good faith but is there a little more i want to go back to the question is there a little more leniency on the campus versus the residential area because that's where we started that initial thought and i wanted to complete it right so I think, first of all, yes, it's reasonable to expect. So let me try to answer your question by looking at safety. Okay. As I tried to say before the break, it's reasonable to expect, it's reasonable for students, especially to expect that um, their uh, residential hall, hall, for instance, would be um, safe spaces in the sense of having more limited challenges unless they want to take them on, you know? I mean, if people want to have conversations into the night about, you know, the death penalty, whatever, you know, difficult issues that they want to just uh, engage with, then that's perfectly fine. Political issues, uh, matters of religion or other issues, that's perfectly fine, but they shouldn't be, uh, these shouldn't be foisted on them. They shouldn't be demanded of them, right? Whereas in the classroom, it makes more sense that I would be challenged as a matter of course, right? I'm coming with a certain set of beliefs and knowledge and understanding about the world. And actually the reason that I come to campus as a student is for the purpose of expanding my horizons and being challenged and reconsidering some of what I already know. If I already know everything, there is not much point, uh, you know, coming to learn, right? So, uh, so in this sense, you know, it's pretty easy to say, sure, the dorms, safety, uh, the classroom, challenge. But the distinction doesn't hold when you look more closely uh, in the sense that you do need to foster and sustain a certain level of safety in the classroom as well. And I know that what I'm saying is controversial in the sense that it makes me sound like a snowflake, uh, right? That's sort of like the common refrain. But um, in my view, the expectation for a certain level of safety in the classroom is reasonable to the extent that it contributes to learning and it permits and supports learning. Here is what I mean. Let's say that I'm the only woman or one of a handful of women in an engineering classroom. And let's say that the professor, uh, let's assume that, that the professor is a man and he is regularly looking down at uh, the women in the room. He's maybe making sexist comments. I'm not saying anything outlandish here, right? Maybe he's assuming that the women in the room were accepted only because somebody has some ideology about uh, accepting women to the engineering programs and actually we don't deserve to be there we don't have real contributions to make or something, or we are distracting to the guys in the room. These are all common, even like um, non-sensational, you know, instances of bias. Where it puts me, if I'm a, a female student, a woman in this classroom, is that it puts me on a constant um need in a constant need to defend myself and to defend myself in the academic sense 
No, I'm actually not dumber than other people in class. I actually am capable in doing something here. You shouldn't be thinking about me as a woman student. You should think about me as a student, right? And so this constant need to defend myself against sexist assumptions to the extent that it's really based on some comments or uh, perspectives that are expressed in the classroom, is creating unsafe conditions in the learning uh, meaning of that, right? So it creates the uh, circumstance in which I cannot learn to the best of my capacity or ability, and I cannot uh, compete if it's a competition or I cannot succeed at the same level that other people in the classroom can, because I am being challenged or questioned on all the time based on my identity, right? Not based on my abilities or on, I don't know, the grades I get or the projects I complete, but based on my identity. And we see that pretty commonly with all sorts of minorities in different classrooms. We see challenges like that coming up regularly, for instance, towards racial or religious minorities, towards undocumented students in the United States, especially in the last few years, towards um, transgender students with professors who are uh, questioning their identity. So all of these are contexts in which uh, speech comes up as a matter of, um, uh, the, as standing at the core of the tension, right? I actually think that we should reframe this matter to thinking about safety. And again, safety uh, in the sense of, am I safe enough or confident enough or respected enough? Is my dignity recognized as a contributing member of the learning community? Right. This is how I think about safety for this purpose. Right. So it's not safety from challenge. It's not safety from reconsidering my ideas. It's safety from being questioned repeatedly in an ongoing manner about whether I'm an equal member of the learning community. And this kind of safety, which, as I said, is at the core of my life in the residential hall should be also a part of the foundation of the professional norms in the classroom. As you were saying before the break, what the main, the primary function of the university and specifically the classroom, as you were saying, is to academic freedom. It's that you're there to explore ideas. You're not there ultimately uh, to be in within the framework of a free speech absolutism. That That's your view is that that's not the primary function of the classroom. And, and that makes a lot of sense. Really, the point is, as you just now expressed it, Alex, the point is whether I am really being invited to participate in the process of learning mm. or whether I'm being seen as somebody who is disruptive to the learning, as my example about uh, the, the women in the engineering classroom, disruptive or actually don't belong there. Uh, a lot of people who are um, 
or at least some people who are members of racial minorities express concern that they are being perceived as uh, being at selective universities, not by merit, right? Somebody accepted you here because of affirmative action or because of some, uh, a, a, you know, external considerations. You actually don't deserve to be here. And so when you are constantly being questioned, right, are you an equal member of the campus community, your dignity, your dignitary safety, right? The kind of safety that is required for you to participate as an equal member of the campus conversation and of the learning process is really being undermined. And so in this way, your academic freedom cannot be fulfilled, right? Because you cannot actually participate in the exchange on an equal footing. Yeah. So, so it sounds to me that ultimately what you're saying is, this, and, and I think you said this right after the break too, and, and, and I thought this was really cool. You you said, so it's certainly not about saying you have absolute free speech and it's definitely not allowing someone in authority to have a, a veto on certain kinds of speech. So it sounds like what we're kind of gearing towards is the idea that there is some sort of way we can maximize or there's an optimal level of, of speech, but there is that balance there that we need to address with certain criteria. That's what I'm sort of pulling out of everything you're saying. Right. And the balance is based on the criteria criteria uh, that really can be boiled down to asking, are you allowing all members of the community, and the community here can be the entire campus, or it can be just my own little seminar room, right, whichever part of the community is relevant for this purpose, are you allowing everybody to participate as equals in the conversation, right? Can they, um, uh, can they benefit in the same way that everybody else benefits from the academic exchange that we are having in, in a given context. This is the boundary that I'm looking to create. And of course, it's going to look different in different contexts, right? If, if there, there is a, a religious, um, uh, really, you know, religiously or a religious organization that, that um, uh, the university belongs to, they are going to have their own boundaries. If it's a women's college, there is going to be different boundaries, right? If it's a college with a certain history, if it's a historically black college, it's going to have different boundaries around what speech is uh, reasonably um, uh, permitted or curtailed so that everybody can participate as equals, right? I don't want to give an authority like some university committee the permission to regulate speech. I also actually don't want uh, myself as a single person to be able to come in and say, look, you hurt my feelings. You may not say such and such statement anymore, right? I don't want to have the full power uh, to censor or silence at the hand of any one particular member, even based on the claim of pain or hurt. But I want that this claim would be a justified reason to start a conversation about the boundaries of speech in a particular space. Do, do you feel that the, the let's, call, let's call them the, the free speech absolutists, do you feel that they don't fully understand and properly acknowledge the harm that can be done by certain means of expressing themselves? And conversely, do you, so two-part question, conversely, do you feel that 
people that would be proponents of effectively a regulated speech environment, do they not acknowledge the damage that can do with uh, to, to learning and the academic forum? The answer to both of your questions is really yes. Um, the Starting from the letter case, I think uh, a lot of students, especially in North America these days, have not grown up observing or experiencing the repercussions of uh, uh, a strict, a politically motivated limitations on speech um, that are placed, you know, from on up on society or on certain parts of society. Some people have, but it's not as common an experience as people have seen when there were large-scale protests and um, arrests, you know, mass arrests based on protests or things like that. So sometimes I sense that people, young people, and this is not uh, a kids these days statement, <laughs> right? But sometimes my sense is that we have lost some of the sense of urgency around protecting speech. For instance, when we see um, members of different my- minority groups, such as the different ones I mentioned earlier, um, members of different minority groups demanding or requesting limitations on biased and prejudiced speech, which I think is a reasonable expectation, as I will say in a second. But when they demand it through the power of censorship, through creating a committee that will declare what is allowed or not allowed to say, they are just unfamiliar with the slippery slope that this creates. They are unfamiliar with the reality that we have seen historically and not in the very far off history, that in fact, when you give a certain authority the permission to silence um, whoever they see as not contributing appropriately to the conversation, it is actually members of these minority groups, religious minorities, racial and gender minorities, sexual orientation minorities, etc., who are then uh, the next to be silenced, right? Uh, and we even see that, again, in the United States today, if you are looking to silence white supremacists, and which, again, I think... Um, uh, students have a good reason to worry about white supremacist uh, expressions, uh, including on campus. If you are creating the tools to silence based on this opinion, the next group that is being silenced is Black Lives Matter. We have seen that, right? It turns around right. against the people who created the uh, the demand for censorship. So this, this was the second part of your question, which was the people who are looking for uh, regulating and uh, censoring speech. Maybe they don't know. Yes, I think they probably don't know uh, how it can harm them and other people that they care about and the causes that they care about. But the people who are free speech absolutists, right? And we see a lot of these as well. And many of them, not all, but many of them actually have good intentions and are committed to democratic and liberal values and are looking to preserve and sustain uh, uh, democratic principles. They fail to recognize that speech is uh, 
today in a polarized political context in which we live, it sometimes is uh, operating as a weapon and it can create uh, real harm in the world. And we have to be uh, aware of this harm and try to avoid it, not by censoring, but by understanding the impact, the repercussion of this speech. So we do see that some of them, uh, them being free speech absolutists, um, are beginning to recognize that. For instance, we have seen recently one of the authors of the Chicago statements about open about free speech, a, a statement to which I object and I disagree with, but that's another conversation. Uh, one of the author of this statement that is a free speech absolutist statement uh, that demands uh, that speech be protected on campus as elsewhere. Uh, he himself um, is a law professor and uh, used to illustrate uh, his uh, discussion about fighting words in his law classroom by using racial slurs to uh, exempt, you know, to illustrate, to show the kind of words that he's talking about. Um, and really uh, a years um, of concerns about the use of the N-word and racial slurs as um, uh, a pedagogical tools in his classroom. I will note that he's a white man to the extent that this is relevant. And uh, last year, uh, he actually expressed that a group of uh, black students met with him and explained to him the kind of atmosphere that he's creating in the classroom by using racial slurs to illustrate his ideas. And basically, from my understanding, of course, I wasn't there. They said, look, we already hear these words. You are not the first person expressing them in our presence. Maybe white students or some of the white students haven't heard them, so you are using our pain to educate somebody else, right? And this is not a fair and equal treatment or opportunity that you are offering to all of the students in your classroom. And so he expressed that after years of arguments about this, he understood he understood that he's causing needless pain and harm, and he's not going to do that, right? Nobody censored him. Nobody told him, you may not say that. But by recognizing the harm that he's causing, he decided to change uh, his pedagogical practice around this. And so I think, what, what is he not a free speech absolutist anymore? He still is, but now he's recognizing the pain a little bit better. And I think many of his, let's say, colleagues, right, or people who share his views still do not. So it seems to me that it's extremely important that we distinguish the content or the ideas that are being explored from the means in which they are explored. Because one of my next questions was going to be, what, what do we do about content that may by its very nature offend people or their dignity, but still deserve to be explored as an idea. And, and in this case, what I mean, uh, 
deserve to be explored. It's not that the ideas uh, have any merit as they come to the table immediately. That's not what I mean. I more mean that, for instance, a conversation may help or uh, a third party, the listener, consider you know two opposing viewpoints, as the old John Stuart Mill argument goes. So how how do we approach that? Is it is it mostly and and I'll maybe make it a little more concrete than example. For instance, if someone truly is a a, a white supremacist or has views of this nature, um, is is there a way that that sort of view and their viewpoint can be explored in a way that is conducive and helps the exploration of that idea? Some would say that the content itself should just simply not be allowed, but others might say that as long as there's some parameters around the conversation, it'd be useful to have that viewpoint and it be countered for the sake of the quote public discussion right so I, this is a really important question and re, this is you know really the place where a lot of the tensions today are expressed right this is where we see a lot of the concerns uh, especially on college campuses but also elsewhere and i would say that the context here really matters to me so, for instance, the person who is a white supremacist, is he one of my students or is he an outside person? This really matters, right? Because I can say I don't, I'm not going to invite a white supremacist as a guest speaker to my classroom. I don't think I'm undermining anybody's speech rights or democracy by making this declaration, right? Not interested this, I don't see this as contributing to what it is that I'm trying to teach. If it's one of my students, then I have to deal with it, right? Because if I tell this person, you may not speak in class, I haven't done anything, right? Of course, if I tell them, yes, please, we would like to hear your ideas about racial hierarchies or whatever it might be, let's learn from you. That's also not a very good approach. Right. So it is on me as an instructor to figure out a way um, to uh, hear out this person, whether it's outside of class or whether it's an appropriate way uh, inside class and to create the conditions for a conversation. Now, my goal in this particular example is not actually the John Stuart Mill goal. Right. My goal is not one in which I will hear this person out and they will hear me out and maybe we will reach some middle ground or we will both learn from each other. My goal actually quite openly in a case like this is for this person to renounce their views. Right. I would like them to grow out of that. But uh, the way that I would do it if I silence them. Right. is not going to be very effective. Look. There are instances in which I'm going to say, you know what, I'm probably not going to change your mind right now, but I cannot let you hijack my classroom every week with your opinions, right? Everybody else wants to learn. You're creating a negative atmosphere or you're taking too much airtime or whatever it might be. So the context is relevant here. What am I trying to do? Am I trying to convince the person that they are wrong? Am I trying to consider their views? In this case, it's not what I'm trying to do, but in some cases it might be, you know, there are cases where uh, people will have opinions that are hurtful for some, but I think, you know, there are aspects of them that should be considered, you know, and should, should be um, 
taken into account or maybe we can reach a common ground uh, in other examples, right? So um, the, the, the particulars of the case really matter. I cannot say, I don't know that I can say that there are specific views that in and of themselves have no room. I'll give you the most extreme example, which is the example from uh, a Bard College a couple years ago, where they invited a person who identifies as a neo-Nazi. Um, he's an Austrian politician and came to give a talk at Bard College, and there was a at a center at Bard College, and there was a lot of concern about that. Right? Are you giving them a platform, legitimizing their view, etc.? But here you have a case of a person who has pretty significant political power in Europe, in this case, in Austria. And by silencing them or deplatforming them or not hearing them out, what am I doing? I'm protecting myself, for instance, as a Jewish person who lost family members at, you know, in the Holocaust. It's definitely painful for me to hear that these ideas are resurgent in Europe, and I'm not unique in that at all. But if I'm not hearing him out, he still has his ideas, um, and they are pretty influential. Right. And I might as well have a conversation, not give him the, um, you know, give him the podium and leave and let him proselytize my students, right? I would like to engage with these ideas such that my students who want to be there and others are able to consider um, how do we argue with this kind of perspective? What is the point that's being made? Right. How can we right. respond to it, right? In the same way that I would want to consider inviting people who are uh, questioning climate science, right? Not because I think there's a point to what they're saying, but because I think this is an American case, right? <laughs> In the United States, uh, climate skeptics uh, are, you know, they have significant political power. Given what we know about the, you know, the state of climate and where it's headed, we need to learn how to argue against that. So uh, we shouldn't censor, but we should properly frame the conversation that we're having and uh, they consider the impact of our words in a way that will make them have the, the kind of impact that we need them and want them to have in an academic context. So, so it w would it be fair to say, and I definitely don't want to put words in your mouth, so you correct me, but what I'm pulling from what you're saying is, is ultimately that, of course, number one, context must be considered. Like you said, if someone wants to hijack a classroom, like let's use the biology class example again, right? If someone wants to sort of hijack a biology classroom uh, with their white supremacist views, let's say, obviously, you're right, the professor has a, a reason to say, look, these people are paying to, to be here not to listen to this but to a biology lesson so that's fair but if we bring it to the context of a, of a debate like for instance that's a speaker's been invited to campus is, is it fair to say that your view once again is that provided the means and the particulars line up in such a way that are uh, productive for debate and, and knowledge and discussion to be on display do, do you view still that there are times where even if some people may be offended or like you said it may be uncomfortable for certain people to listen to a certain topic that the benefit of the topic on display 
massively outweighs some of those potential hurt feelings. I guess that's ultimately what I was trying to get before is if you do view circumstances where that's possible. Right. Definitely. Definitely. And it's even unavoidable, right? I mean, as an instructor, I mean, if it's, if you make a lesson plan as an instructor and you are the only one speaking in your lecture, then you have full control of all the content. But in as much as you're going to let students speak, right, uh, whether it's in a seminar room or in a recitation or, I mean, to the extent that the microphone goes around the room and other people get to participate, you have very limited control on what they are going to say. Right. And so as an instructor in a college classroom, you ought to be ready for some kind of disruption, you know, for a wrong answer, for people who have unsavory views. It's going to happen in your classroom. Some of the more challenging ones actually are happening in science classrooms in the U.S. I keep hearing that, right? You have people who are studying environmental science or atmospheric studies, and they come in with very strong views about um, man-made climate change being uh, a hoax or, you know, or they have certain political and ideological views around that. Of course, this is not the topic of your class, but you have to figure out a way to engage with them, right? This is not about pain. This is about truth, right? Right. But similarly, when people come in and they say, well, we all know that women are not as capable as men in certain domains or there there is a racial hierarchy. I mean, we hear these things actually more openly today because of the polar the political polarization uh, in the US in Canada in various countries in Europe so we ought to be ready to hear these ex- uh, you know these expressions out and to respond to them and to frame them in appropriate ways right people who have diverse, ideological views, first of all, they have speech rights. That's not the main point, but they do. Uh, They should enjoy the same level of academic freedom as other members of the community at that level do, whether they are faculty people or students, etc. And we have to decide how we work with, rather than silence, these various views in a way that satisfies the academic mission that we're trying to promote. Obviously, in an atmospheric studies or, or envir- environmental science classroom, I'm not going to end up at the, you know, in the, in the middle. I'm going to stick to what it is that I need to teach, which is the truth, right? But I have to engage, right? A silence uh, very rarely helps. Not never. Sometimes you need to silence people, uh, sometimes because they ramble on, sometimes because uh, they hurt people's feelings in a way that I cannot salvage later in the classroom, so I have to take it out of the classroom. Uh, But generally speaking, silencing an opinion is not an effective pedagogical or academic tool. 
and also is most commonly unjustified. Right. And, and I would say that, like you said, most of the time, if you were to silence someone's opinion, the ultimate loser, actually, in my view, isn't the person who's a, who you're silencing in that very second. Because let, let's say they're, they're anti-Semitic or something, and they're really dedicated to that point of view, you probably won't change their mind in 10 minutes. But someone who may right. be on the fence considering what we would consider dangerous ideas, or maybe the, the counter to those dangerous ideas, I think they would be the ultimate loser if someone was to be silenced because they're not going to be exposed to the different points of view on that. They might just go back to their dorm room and and go to websites that convince them otherwise and have no one else to talk to about this kind of stuff. Right, right, exactly. And so you have to think about what goal are you trying to achieve in the conversation and what is the most effective way of doing this. And most commonly, as you're just now illustrating The way to achieve this is by engagement rather than by silencing. So before we wrap up the episode, our time is winding down. But towards the the end of your book, uh, Free Speech on Campus, you you did talk about sort of from different perspectives, like students, faculty, administration, sort of guidelines. And I don't want you to read the whole book to me here, but I thought it'd be kind of fun to end off with that. So obviously, not only are there multiple facets to university, like we were discussing before, where you have the campus, you have the classroom and, and the residential areas, let's say, but there's also different people that serve different functions on universities, campuses, right? Students, faculty organizers. So I wanted to sort of, I thought it'd be fun to quickly run through these sort of different uh, people on campus and have your quick point of view on how they feel and how you feel it'd be best for them to approach situations like this. So for instance, students, if a student feels that there is an opinion or a club or an association that is pushing points of views they disagree with and the student ultimately feels that they don't want to hear these points of views, what do you think their course of action should be? What, what do you think at least the, the best approach for that person should be in this case? Right. Well, first of all, if it's one person, the best approach is for them to find other people who share their their view or their feeling or their opinion, right? So you have more power with numbers to the extent that you can get them on your side. I think most commonly, the best way to approach speech that you think is hurtful or biased or hate-based is to avoid it. And we always have to remember that one of the things that gives speech its power is that people hear it, that people listen to it, to the extent that you can avoid listening, whether it's through boycott or just through doing something else or through intentionally making sure that people um Uh, uh, choose not to attend an event that you think is inappropriate. Uh, This is one of the most powerful things that you can do, both for yourself and as an expression of opposition. And of course, there are various ways in which people can protest. They can use humor. um, They can use uh, alternatives to speech. Uh, We see sometimes uh, our students organizing little dance parties or music sort of to drown out um, uh, uninvited speech that they find to be offensive or inappropriate outside the classroom, of course. (laughs) Uh, You should consider whether there is a productive way to engage. Are there forms of activism that you can take on? Uh, Should you involve the campus um, uh, administration, which I think is a further down the road uh, step that you should take? Right. Not not the first step in your view that you should take. I think students should take these as opportunities, again, either to disengage 
look, your views are terrible. I really don't want to expose myself to them. I don't want to waste my time on your views. I'm moving on to doing something else. That's perfectly fine, right? And maybe even I'm uh, circulating a notice saying that I'm not going and I encourage everyone not to go because this person is off. I think that's fine, right? But sometimes you have to organize alternative speech. You have to make sure that people hear your perspective, which is uh, opposing, right? So you can have banners and posters, you can have protests and sit-ins, you can try to ask hard questions at the event uh, or the classroom or wherever this is taking place, right? So students really should try to think whether they want to devote time to that. And they need to try to do this in a way that exposes the um, misguided, hurtful, uh, wrong uh, speech, uh, rather than trying to silence it. I think the problem with trying to silence speech is that most often it just amplifies it, right? You're trying to de-platform or disinvite the person. Next thing you know, they have um, cable news appearances bemoaning the snowflakes of today and how they silence right. them. So this is just not, again, not effective. The next one on my list was uh, faculty, instructors, professors. I, I think we spent a lot of time talking about that already. It's, it right. seemed to me that you said ultimately their job is to consider the context of everything is the main thing I, I pulled out and manage that properly. Right. And to promote uh, the goal of their class, uh, making sure that students are all able to participate and to benefit from the learning that occurs in their classroom. I think this is their main responsibility. And they need to remember that this is, you know, it's not a one-off, right? It's not like with an invited speaker. If you have a class, you are going to make a mistake sometimes. And you can come back and say, look, you know, last week in class, Alex said something that was really hurtful and I never responded and I really want to pick this up, right? So you have a responsibility and you can do it in a long-term way. And the last one on my list, I think this, this might be a big one, but the, the administration. So the administration has to deal with a lot. Sometimes, you know, they got angry students, angry faculty members. Uh, Parents. Oh, I was about to say that. So a lot of people, uh, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want this as a 20-year-old university, but a lot of people have their parents calling uh, universities now in the administration. So I know that we could go have a whole episode on that probably. But if we were to sum just that part up, what what do you think the administration's sort of first reaction to be, uh, be to like these kinds of problems and also their, their long-term fix and solutions to these problems? Well, I think generally speaking, administrators should have a more limited involvement in um, uh, in the details of many of these controversies. Um, a lot of them can be and should be handled at the lower levels of the university. And I think the most important role of administrators in this regard is to properly reflect the values that the university or their particular university stands for. You know, if you have an incident of hate speech, you can express uh, the university's commitment to equity or to equal dignity or to religious freedom or to whatever it is that was, um, uh, you know, that was a concern in a particular instance. I think expressing and upholding the values of the university as a, as a declarative 
statement, right, is probably the most important thing that um, administrators can do. And to try to maintain the significance of protecting free speech and protecting the inclusion of all people and the equal dignity of all members of the community in participating in this speech, uh, in, in, in benefiting from the speech and expressing their views on campus, uh, expressing these values is probably the most important thing that administrators can do. And they need to represent that both to the campus community, so internally, and to represent that outwardly to uh, a political world and the society that today sometimes questions uh, the campus's community and the university's uh, commitment to uh, uh, the value of free speech and inclusion. So properly representing these values and the commitment that the university has to these values is, properly, is probably the most important step that administrators can take. Great. Well, our, our time is, is pretty much uh, up here. But uh, so to wrap it all together, I always try to end the episodes off by like this. I always like to ask the guests. I know we've talked about a lot in this episode, but we, we try to bring it full circle and put a finer point on the discussion if we can. So giving you the last word on, on the main discussion, if I were to ask you what you hope the main takeaways for someone listening to you here in this episode here today on how speech can be protected on campus and how people should go about the issue of free speech on campus, what would you like the main takeaway to be? I would suggest that free speech is uh, most often protected on campus, that it is most often um, aligned and easily um, uh, works well with a commitment to justice and to inclusion on a diverse campus, even within a polarized uh, society, we can still uh, on a university campus maintain a commitment to open expression and to inclusion of all members of the campus community um, in the exercise of open expression uh, to the extent that we are willing to take on a commitment to fulfill the mission of the university uh, as a shared endeavor. Great. Sigal, thank you very much for being with me today on The Curious Task. I enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much, Alex. That was really a pleasure. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.